the occult laurel canyon i hope so because today we are finally concluding the research on laurel canyon and i will show you how the counterculture movement of the 60s led to the forming of today's satanic empire and we're going to connect the dots and i will finally be presenting the information on the black dahlia murder as well as the St. Louis Arch in the obsession with the demonic propagated by Ed and Lorraine Warren. So, this is one of my favorite two-part episodes that I've done because it just shows you when the Empire formed and what it's led to in today's culture. So, Let's dive in. You know what to do. Find me on cosmic.peach.podcast. If you want to come on, leave five-star review if you love what I do. Here we go. We are back in action for part two, the long-awaited part two of the Occult Laurel Canyon. And today, I want to dive right in. And first off, let me say, this was definitely meant for me to research. And this was definitely meant for me to cover because the information came to me in such a synchronistic and serendipitous way. First, starting off with Whitney Fox sending me a blog by David McGowan about the Laurel Canyon, which I expanded with my own research, and then Sean McCann actually reached out on a completely separate, different topic, Um, and he said, 
you know, I listened to your episode about Natalie Wood. And if you're going to do Old Hollywood, then you should talk about this actress. And he tossed this name out and I go, oh my God, I've never even heard of this woman. So then it piques my curiosity. I'm looking into this woman and you guys, it leads right back to the canyon. So I'm really excited about this episode. And just as a recap, we last left off with John Lennon from the Beatles, obviously, and his assassination. But today, I want to open up with talking about an opposing band, which would be the Beach Boys. And I want to talk about Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys in particular. So, today we're going to be exploring the Rustic Canyon, which lies about nine miles west of Laurel Canyon. And it was there in Lower Rustic Canyon that Dennis Wilson lived in a log cabin style house at 14400 Sunset Boulevard. And this expansive home sat on three landscape acres of gently rolling hills. And so it was here in this log cabin style house, of course, that... Charlie Manson and various members of his entourage will move in and live with Wilson in the summer of 1968. But Tex Watson, curiously enough, was already living there. As many as two dozen members of Manson's clan spent the entire summer there, with Wilson picking up the tab for all the expenses. So obviously he really liked these people because I don't pick up a tab for anyone, not even my husband. <laughs> so Dennis Wilson busied himself with recording Manson in his home studio and inviting fellow musicians like Neil Young over to the house to hear Charlie perform. Yeah, and so Dennis would later claim that he had destroyed all the Manson demo tapes and that he remembered almost nothing of the time he spent with Charlie and the family. And that he certainly knew nothing about the Tate and LaBianca murders, which were committed in the summer of 1969, about a year after the family had vacated the Rustic Canyon residence. But he knows nothing, alright? So... At some point, Wilson must have had a little change of heart because he decided that maybe he did know a little something about the murders. And he said, quote, I know why Charles Manson did what he did. End quote. He actually said, someday I'll write a book. I'll tell the world and I'll explain why he did it. Yeah. Okay. So that book was never written. But instead, Dennis Wilson drowned under questionable circumstances on December 28, 1983 in the marina where his ship was docked. Pure coincidence, I'm sure. But speaking of Manson, we have heard in the last episode how arguably the bloodiest and most notorious mass murder in the city of Angels was directly connected to the Laurel Canyon music scene. That being, of course, the Manson murders, Sharon Tate, all of them, the LaBianca murders, but the 
city of Los Angeles can also boast one of the most notorious single victim murders as well, which was the most gruesome and most famous unsolved murder in the city's history. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about how on January 15th, 1947, the mutilated body of aspiring actress Elizabeth Short was found posed in a field. The body was ritualistically butchered and she was found nude, sliced cleanly in half, and completely drained of blood. So, parts of the body had been removed and her body had also been thoroughly sanitized. And bruising clearly indicated that the young girl had been savagely beaten And forensic evidence suggests that she had been forced to eat feces during her torturous ordeal. And she was quickly dubbed the Black Dahlia. And it is by that name that she is known and written about today. Of course, everyone knows the Black Dahlia. So, of course, much has been written about Elizabeth Short, and it's all contradictory, but what seems to be agreed upon is that she had recently worked at a military facility that is now known as Vandenberg Air Force Base, and she had some kind of a close connection to a U.S. Naval Hospital in San Diego where she may have worked. This murder occurred some 20 years before Laurel Canyon's glory days. So I know what you're thinking, like, how in the world could this be connected to what we're talking about in the Laurel Canyon in the 60s and 70s? Well, I'm going to connect the dots for you, and it will make perfect sense. So let's dive into it. And, you know, if you want to have a really bad day, go look up the crime scene photos of the Black Dahlia. These images are absolutely horrifying. But that, unfortunately, is what elite ritualized crime looks like. So, let's start connecting the dots. The first dot I want to connect is the birth of John Edmund Andrew Phillips to his parents Claude and Edna Phillips on August 30th, 1935. Stick with me, folks. So, Claude, John Phillips' father, is a retired Marine Corps officer and engineer, and John Phillips' grandpa, John Andrew Phillips, is a prominent architect that one day mysteriously fell to his death on a construction site according to John Phillips' autobiography. But that tends to happen to family members associated with the Laurel Canyon. It's weird. They they end up dying in, like, hor- horrific ways. But we're going to touch on that in a second. So John Phillips' mother was a lady named Edna, and she had what some people call, like, an unconventional upbringing because... Edna's mom was supposed to be like this psychic faith healer and, you know, her dad was whatever, but she actually was abducted by gypsies and taken away when she was just one years old. And Edna's father, John Phillips' grandpa, actually 
found her a year later in Mexico on some Liam Neeson taken bullshit. So, yeah, I guess you can call that completely unconventional. I don't know a lot of people whose mothers are psychic faith healers who are involved with gypsies and they get kidnapped and abducted and taken to Mexico for a year. But anyways... So Edna was 15 when she met and began a relationship with Claude Phillips. Um, And by 18, Edna gives birth to the couple's first child, Rosie Phillips, John Phillips' sister, who was born on New Year's Eve, 1922. And Rosie is the one that would later become a career employee of the Pentagon, where John's first wife, Susie Adams would also find work. And so, years later, according to John, Rosie's daughter, Patty, would be found dead of an overdose in a girlfriend's apartment in North Hollywood. And there was a lot of questions around this mysterious death. So it's like I said, people connected to the Laurel Canyon die weird. So, In the late 1920s, Claude Phillips was commissioned to Haiti, where he remained for four years, and then he was sent back to Quantico, then shipped off to Nicaragua, before finally returning to Alexandria, Virginia, where John Phillips, who would grow up to become arguably the most important music figure in the canyon, grew up and went to high school in Alexandria, Virginia. So, Like I said in the last episode, John grows up and marries his first wife, who is the aristocratic Susie Adams, descendant of President John Adams, and get this, the occasional practitioner of voodoo. Yeah, little voodoo hoodoo for you there. So their first son, Jeffrey, was born on Friday the 13th in December of 1957. Shortly after that, John found himself, of all places, in Havana, Cuba just as it was about to fall to the revolutionary forces of Fidel Castro. And then some months later, in late 1958, John Phillips flies back to Los Angeles and he begins performing on an amateur's night at the Pandora's Box on Sunset Strip. And his first band was called The Journeyman. And it featured... John Phillips, obviously, Scott McKenzie, and Dick Weissman. And it was while touring with the journeyman that John Phillips met this young lady named Holly Michelle Gilliam. And I know what you're thinking, like, what the fuck does this have to do with the Black Dahlia? Just hear me out, okay? So, here is a little background on this situation. John Phillips will later marry Holly Michelle Gilliam. And some background on Michelle. Well, Michelle was born November 10th, 1944 in Long Beach, California. And her dad was described as a merchant mariner, a movie production assistant, and a self-taught intellectual. And Michelle's mom was described as a Baptist minister's daughter. But she actually died of a brain aneurysm when Michelle was just five years old. So after um, her mom dies of a brain aneurysm, Michelle's father took the kids and promptly relocated to Mexico. Now, Michelle's father is a guy named Gil Gilliam. 
And he is also very much so connected in this whole Laurel Canyon scene as well. And so let's talk about how. The family, Gil Gilliam, Michelle Phillips, and them remained in Mexico for several years, but then they later returned to Southern California and Gil finds work as an L.A. County probation officer. And according to John Phillips, Gil's work often required him to go out of town. But I would think that it would be rather difficult for him to be probation officering when he's out of town. So I think that was a cover for something. But as I mentioned in the last episode, when the movie Easy Rider came out, the Solar Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis was sieged, if you will, and a six-year-old little boy was found locked in a box being tortured to death And it was the son of, remember I said, an L.A. County probation officer? Well, that happens to be Gil Gilliam, Michelle Phillips' father. So the little boy that was locked in the 6x6 box that was getting tortured to death happens to be Michelle Phillips' brother. So (laughs) it's like I said, it always leads back to something and everything is definitely connected. So... On with this story. In 1958, while John Phillips is vacationing in war-torn Cuba, Michelle finds this new mother figure, uh, as she describes her, in this 23-year-old girl named Tamar Hodel. And Tamar's father was a man by the name of Dr. George Hodel. And George Hodel is described as being the most pathologically decadent man in Los Angeles and the city's venereal disease czar and a fixture in its A-list community. And it was widely known that George Hodel embraced that all-purpose Luciferian creed, do what thou wilt. Ooh, yes, so you were waiting for it, and now here it is. Let's connect the dots. So Tamar and her siblings grew up in their father's Hollywood house, which resembled, get this shit, a Mayan temple, and was the site of these wild parties. And Hodel was often joined by director John Huston and photographer Man Ray. Remember those names. So this luxurious home reportedly featured, among other amenities, a subterranean walk-in vault. Don't know why the fuck you need one of those, but they had one. So this house lied about three miles due east of the mouth of Laurel Canyon. And Tamar Hodel often talked about how she uncomfortably posed nude for dirty old men like Man Ray and had once wriggled free from a predatory John Houston. Her father, George Hodel, not so shockingly, had also committed incest with her. And she said when she was 11, George Hodel, her father, taught her to perform oral sex on him. And her father also plied her with erotic books, grooming her for what he touted as their transcendent union. Yeah, 
sex magic. So he also freely shared her with his wealthy and influential friends. So to Tamar's horror, she becomes pregnant at the tender age of 14 with her father's baby. So to her greater horror, her father wanted her to have his baby. So she freaks the fuck out. And according to my research, a friend took Tamar to go get an abortion. And Dr. George Hodel was so infuriated that he busted Tamar over the head with his pistol and began beating on her, which prompted Tamar's stepmom to assist her in going into hiding. So, Dr. George Hodel was then arrested and charged with, among other things, offering his young daughter to several of his friends at an orgy and incest and blah, blah, blah. So, he gets arrested and he's put on trial. And in this sensational 1949 incest trial, a witness stepped forward and described how she was hypnotized by Hodel at a party and she also claimed that she had witnessed him attempt to hypnotize other girls at the party. Now, allegations that the rich and powerful were dabbling in incest, hypnotism, mind control, pedophilic orgies, and Luciferian philosophies surely must have shocked all the people in Los Angeles in the 1940s. Right? Wrong. <laughs> because this is just business as usual for them. And what else is business as usual for them is that Dr. George Hodel was acquitted. <laughs> so I guess the glove didn't fit. But the theory does. <laughs> now, it's really not a theory. It's all actually provable. But I know what you're thinking. Why am I telling you all this? So here goes. While Dr. George Hodel was standing trial on these sensational incest charges, he was and still is today the prime suspect in the Black Dahlia murder case. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, of course, there have been numerous suspects identified in this case over the years, including actor-director Orson Welles. But George Hodel seems to be a much more likely suspect than any of those other ones who have been identified. And the most likely scenario is that George Hodel committed this crime in junction with various other pedophilic people in his Luciferian social circle. So, for example, that would have been Man Ray. And, of course, because they were so close, he is a super compelling suspect, given that the way Elizabeth Short's body was posed appears to mimic the Minotaur, one of Man Ray's better-known photographs. You guys got to go look up the Minotaur by Man Ray and compare it to the way Elizabeth Short's body was posed in the field. And the way that her torso was severed actually is the same place on the torso of the Minotaur photograph where it the torso ends in the photo. So 
lot of very, very crazy similarities. And if you go compare them, you will get the goosebumps like you wouldn't fucking believe. So, as it turns out, Man Ray was something like the Robert Maplethorpe of his era. The same Robert Maplethorpe that has been linked to the Son of Sam case and various other ritualized murders. Mm-hmm. So, how is it then that Michelle Phillips, at 14 years old, becomes involved with Tamar Hodel, the daughter of this wealthy and influential George Hodel, has never actually been explained. But, you know, the relationship between Michelle and Tamar was actually, they were really, really close. And Michelle described Tamar Hodel as the epitome of glamour. And Michelle said that Tamar took her under her wing and bought her clothes and enrolled her in modeling school and taught Michelle how to drive and actually also provided her with a fake ID and a steady stream of prescription drugs obtained by George Hodel. Now, also, according to Michelle, Tamar put on perfect airs around her dad and when it became necessary, she would sleep with him. I don't know why it would become necessary, but apparently Tamar Hodel was fucking Michelle Phillips's dad, so whatever works, I guess. And this is probably why in 1961, Gil Gilliam did not have a problem with allowing Michelle Phillips to move to San Francisco with the daughter of a violent pedophile. <laughs> but soon enough, Tamar actually finds herself in a relationship with journeyman Scott McKenzie, who was the one who sang that Flowers in Your Hair song. And also... John Phillips began coming to Michelle Phillips, well, I guess at the time it would be Michelle Gilliam's room on a nightly basis. So while they were touring, Tamar would have Michelle with her and they would go around. They were like groupies, right, of the journeyman. But soon enough, you know, Tamar would go to Scott McKenzie's room and John Phillips would go to Michelle's room. And, you know, eventually they get married. So... Michelle was actually just 17 when she met 26-year-old John Phillips. And despite the fact that John Phillips was still married to Susie Adams, whom he had two kids with, he was still fucking Michelle Phillips. And eventually they get married. And I guess what one of the most ironic things about this story is, is that Tamar was so traumatized by the incest she endured from her father, Dr. George Hodel, but Michelle, looking up to Tamar, will still go on to marry John Phillips, who was incestuous with his daughter, Mackenzie Phillips. I mean, it's just like, it blows my mind. <laughs> but that's what these Luciferian people do. It's literally, that's their thing. They're all part of this cult. And during the heyday of the Mamas and the Papas, John and Michelle Phillips knew and regularly played host to virtually everyone of importance in the canyon with, you know, their social circle, including Warren Beatty, Peter and Jane Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Terry Melcher, and girlfriend Candace Bergen, 
Marlon Brando, Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, and Wojtek Frakowski, also soon-to-be-dead gossip colonist Stephen Brandt, Larry Hagman, presidential brother-in-law Peter Lawford. <laughs> so I guess we should add Marilyn Monroe to the Laurel Canyon death list as well. <laughs> but anyways, also Dennis Hopper, Ryan O'Neill, Mia, Rosemary's baby Pharaoh, and also Freemason Peter Sellers and Zsa Zsa Gabor. So there are so many ties also between Charles Manson and John Phillips and, you know, of course, other Laurel Canyon luminaries. But And, you know, Michelle Phillips also had a brief affair with Roman Polanski in London while Polanski was married to the soon-to-be-dead Sharon Tate. Now, we're really going to get into some biscuits and gravy here because I got to thinking, like, how did all of this come about? Like, when did this start? When did they decide they were going to form the empire? And I'm obviously going to say it was the early 1960s. But as we've learned so many times, like, they usually signal the entrance of a new era with some massive tragedy or something. And I talked to someone else and they said that there is a demonic gateway that opens and spews forth like all this demonic energy. And it was actually built in the sixties. And I got to thinking like, well, what is it? What is this gateway? <laughs> It turns out that it's the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. And it was built in February 12th, 1963. You guys, this, it's just astounding because if you want to know, I've always thought that the St. Louis Arch was, you know, just a nice little thing that you go take a picture next to if you're passing through the area. But apparently it's not. So how could this connect with the 1960s other than the fact that it was built in the 1960s? Well, the purpose and function of the St. Louis Arch was conceived by this rumored occultist Luther Eli Smith. And it was supposedly constructed to revive the St. Louis Riverfront and stimulate the local economy amid the economic disarray of the Great Depression, which it did. But, however, it also served a far more nefarious purpose. The pinnacle is a tourist attraction by day and a site for ritual sacrifice by night. The St. Louis Arch is situated atop a site of powerful energies, a nexus of converging ley lines of energy from all around the world. The reality of its construction was as a gateway to the unknown. And randomly, and without warning, the Demon Arch activates in any number of abominations, demons, or creatures can step through. And it is rumored that an entire military regiment came through, only to vanish into the countryside without a trace. Now, 
It's funny, we've made all these connections to the military in Laurel Canyon in the 60s, and then I read this thing about an entire military regiment coming through, the Demon Arch, and it's like, this is black magic. There are also a lot of things about the construction of the arch itself, which are really dark, occulted, all the numbers. I mean, a numerologist could explain this to you, but that's not really my wheelhouse. What I'm doing is providing you the connection between the 1960s and all this demonic energy. So I also found it funny that someone else connected to the 1960s and the military and the demonic would be Ed and Lorraine Warren. Because they got their start in the 60s. Ed Warren was also in the military. And they stated that their sole purpose was to prove to the world that the devil was real. But all they did was get people more entrenched in occult practices. And piqued everyone's interest in demonic activity. Because in the years the Warrens were at the top of their game... Ouija boards sold off the shelf. So I really believe those two people were actually propagating something a lot more different than what they said they were. And it's also funny because one of the cases that they are most famous for was this Lindley Street house, which they investigated a couple of months after the movie The Exorcist came out. And what's the connection there? Well, The Exorcist is based on a little boy named Robbie who lived in St. Louis. <laughs> I'm telling you, you guys, like, this is crazy. So as I'm doing this research, I get a message from Sean McCann, and I'm shitting you not. He drops this name of an actress who is Definitely connected to Laurel Canyon, the 60s, the demons, the devils, all of that. Now, who am I talking about? Her name is Tuesday Weld. And I had never heard of her. But it turns out that Tuesday Weld, during her childhood, exhibited amazing clairvoyant gifts that quickly brought her to the attention of a concealed druidic network of families. And it's here that Tuesday Weld was involved in the world politics and ritual magic. Weld became a fast-rising prodigy in what some people call the Illuminati, the elites, whatever, these demon worshippers, the Luciferians, okay? And at the age of 15, she was chosen as the new queen and high priestess of the Druids. In the initiation rite that signaled her ascension into leadership was the plane crash that carried Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper to their deaths in February of 1958 right before the St. Louis Arch was constructed. So this was her inauguration into the cult and becoming the queen and high priestess. So, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about the plane crash of Buddy Holly, and they say, 
It was just a horrific accident. And I've always had a spidey tingle that no, it was not just a fucking accident. And then I find this and I'm like, I knew it, you know? So in the 1960s, Tuesday Weld is this sex kitten of sorts. And she is descended from a royal bloodline of druid witches. And like I said, at a very, very early age, she's selected as high priestess. And from this position, her assignment was ushering in the counterculture movement of the 60s. So she has this position of occult authority, and she was able to wield great control over the 60s counterculture, and she was influencing people like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, David Crosby, who, by the way, they were best friends, and it's said that in the 1960s, everybody wanted to have David Crosby's baby because he was part of like this you know, super strong, weird bloodline that had like signers of the Declaration of Independence and, uh, you know, members of the Continental Congress and like all this. He was like our American royalty, right? Everybody wanted to have his baby. And he's BFFs with Tuesday Weld. So Tuesday is pulling the strings behind world events and exercising her occult influence in the realms of the political scene. And that would explain why there's Tuesday references everywhere. And, you know, for an example, Tuesday is, you know, hanging around the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and they were prodigies of Tuesday Weld's occult revolution. And her influence on the Beatles was most noticeable during the Beatles' psychedelic phase, and it alluded to it in songs such as I Am the Walrus, in which the lyric refers to Stupid Bloody Tuesday, and also cryptically mentions a pornographic priestess. In other songs that mention Tuesday Weld include Lady Madonna, as well as She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, with the chorus saying, Tuesday's on the phone to me. And in the 1967 Rolling Stones album Between the Buttons, it featured the billboard hit Ruby Tuesday. So it's also rumored that she was involved with Anton LaVey. And I'm going to just squash this rumor right here because it's actually something you can go and look up in Google. She was actually involved with Anton LaVey. And it's funny because it's also said that Anton LaVey was associated with the Laurel Canyon scene, hinted at in the Eagles' 1977 hit Hotel California. And that hotel was the Chateau Marmont. And in the album cover, not the one where it just says Hotel California and it's like the outside of the hotel, but the one where it's like a bunch of people standing on the inside of the hotel, you can actually see Anton LaVey on the second floor landing. So definitely was involved in Laurel Canyon, definitely involved with Tuesday Weld and the whole scene. So the Chateau Marmont was an old hotel that had long been a fixture on Hollywood Sunset Boulevard. And in November 11th, 1977, New York Magazine interviewed Tuesday Weld 
at the Hotel Marmont, and she showed up for the interview wearing a witch's hat and witch's skirt. And she reminisced about her years living at the Chateau Marmont, and that in itself is enough for me. So let's go ahead and dig a little deeper. Well, I found the dedication of the Satanic Bible of Anton LaVey, and in this dedication, it mentions Jane Mansfield, Marilyn Monroe, and Tuesday Weld. So Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield were killed in heinous deaths, but it's funny because he mentions how Tuesday Weld is smarter than them, and that won't basically ever happen to her, so let me read it. Quote, the dedication of my satanic Bible to Marilyn Monroe and Tuesday Weld was, in Marilyn's case, homage to a woman who was literally victimized by her own inherent witchery potential, which was there in her looks. I think a great deal of the feminine mystique of beauty, which was personified in Marilyn's image. In the case of Tuesday Weld, it's part of the magical ritual. She is my candidate of a living approximation of these other two women, referencing Marilyn Monroe and James Mansfield. Unlike them, Tuesday has the intelligence and emotional stability to withstand that in which Marilyn Monroe could not. For this reason, Tuesday is not in the public eye as much. Her own better judgment has cautioned her not to bite off more than she can chew. End quote, Anton LaVey. So there we go, right there. And I think it is absolutely astounding that they say the plane crash, which carried Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper to their death, was the signal that initiated not only Tuesday Weld as High Priestess, but ushered in the counterculture movement of the 60s. And if you don't think that we're not living in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll world that Aleister Crowley dreamed of for us, you'd be high off your fucking ass because we are, thanks to the 60s. So it got me to thinking, who else has died in tragic plane crashes. And so this is just going to be a little bonus to this episode. Because as it turns out, Aaliyah, I have mentioned this before, Aaliyah, Buddy Holly, John F. Kennedy Jr., and his wife, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, of course, Kobe Bryant, John Denver, also associated with Laurel Canyon, Patsy Cline, Carolyn, as I mentioned, Bassett Kennedy, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s wife, Jenny Riviera, Troy Gentry, a man named Sabas Chandra Bose, and Homie J. Bahadra, I think. I'm probably not saying that right. But so, could these plane crashes also be of occult significance, ushering something in? Well, as a bonus to this episode, let's look into it a little bit. The first one I want to talk about is Patsy Cline because it's really freaking spooky. Patsy had just finalized her will a few months before she was killed in the plane crash. And it instructed that her little kids be left to the care of her friends, which that is so sad. And in the months before she died, she had also began to distribute 
her prized possessions to her family and friends. And she had said she had premonitions of her own death. And it, maybe they told her, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's just weird. It's like, kind of like Buddy Holly always said, like, I don't have time. Like, he kind of was foreboding. Like, he knew he was going to die, right? And so did Patsy Cline. Now, let's move on, because this is just a little bonus here. I'm not going to dive too much into detail. But Aaliyah tragically dies in August of 2001 alongside eight others in a plane crash destined for Miami and crashed less than a minute after taking off in the Bahamas. And um, it's said that there was too much weight on the aircraft, which caused it to be difficult to control in the air and it led to the crash. But the pilot actually had faked his license and was drunk and on cocaine at the time of the accident, according to a 2002 toxicology report. But there is this conspiracy theory that Aaliyah's death was a blood sacrifice with many people saying that Jay-Z, Beyonce, and Dash were the main offending parties. But it's basically believed that Aaliyah had to get taken out in order for Beyonce to rise in the rank, which is why they did this to her. But I also heard that Aaliyah was basically begging not to get on the airplane and somebody actually slipped her like a muscle relaxer or a Xanax or something and basically doped her up, put her on the plane asleep and she, then the plane crashed and she died. So damn is all I got to say about that. So there's also a few members of the royal family dying in plane crashes also in August. And I don't know if there's some kind of occult significance to the month of August. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm only human. There's only so much I can research. But somebody better drop me a fucking message on Instagram and let me know because it's so weird. These royal family members dying in August in plane crashes just like Aaliyah. And the first one I want to talk about is Prince George. He, and he was described as being like vibrant, energetic, whatever, whatever, life of the party. And he was the twin brother of reigning King Edward. So he meets his demise in a plane crash in August. And it's said that the official story is that the pilot miscalculated the flight and sent the plane straight into the side of a mountain. But it's also said that like the pilot was drunk or whatever. So I'm not sure what that's, you know, adding up to, but... I think if you were drunk, it st there's like there's like all these little gauges and stuff that would tell you if you were about to fly into a mountain. I don't know. But so then we have Prince William of Gloucester, who was the queen's first cousin, but he wanted an adventurous and private life. So in the diplomatic services, he fell in love with this Hungarian beauty uh, queen, and they had a romance, but their relationship ended when he was 30. And William of Gloucester actually perished in a plane crash on August 28, 1972, while preparing for a competition at Wolverton Hampton in the West Midlands. 
Then we have Princess Cecile of Greece and Denmark, 1937. Cecile, who was the third oldest sister of Prince Philip, tragically died in a plane crash en route to London for a royal wedding. So on November 16, 1937, Cecile, 26, and her family boarded a flight headed for the capital, and she was joined by her husband, um, the Grand Duke of Hesse, and her mother-in-law, two young sons, and the children's nanny, all died in a plane crash. So then we have the guy that I mentioned earlier on the list, whose name is I think it's Home Baba, but so maybe it's Homey Baba. I sound like a retard right now, but so during World War II, Baba, who was internationally recognized for his work with cosmic rays, was back in India, and he joined the Indian Institute of Science and eventually founded the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research in Bombay. And he often acknowledged the fact that he was risking his life doing his job. And then in January 1966, India lost its nuclear energy pioneer, Baba, in a plane crash. And the Air India Flight 101 from Bombay to New York, which had, of course, Baba on board, crashed into Mont Blanc in the Alps killing all 117 passengers. So, the history of today's nuclear weapons program of the country can be traced back to the establishment of the Atomic Energy Commission in 1948 with Dr. Homi Baba as its first chairman. And the news of his death came three months after he announced that India can make an atom bomb in 18 months. So, basically, the theories are indicating that involvement of the CIA in the alleged assassination plan was carried out to prevent India from becoming a nuclear-powered nation. So, now, that's very interesting. So, Baba was this visionary scientist who believed that for India to emerge as a superpower, the country would have to expand its nuclear potential, and they were in the process of making an atom bomb, and blah, 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 blah. But so, back in 2017, a Swiss climber, Daniel Roche, found remains of an aircraft in the Alps. Initially, Roche, who is an aviation disaster enthusiast, had this idea of the 1966 flight being downed by a missile. (laughs) And evidently the statement fueled countless theories that the India air flight crashed because it was blown up by a missile. So following the Sino-Indian War, the Indian government began to focus on nuclear weaponry under Baba's supervision and with the support of then-Prime Minister, something I can't pronounce along the lines of Law Babdur Shastri. And Shastri died allegedly under mysterious circumstances a day after he signed the Tashkent Agreement, and 13 days later, Baba died too 
in the plane crash. So to this date, the official record states that the cause of death of one of its greatest scientific thinkers as a plane crash, but there are hundreds of theories that basically say Baba and the Prime Minister were murdered. And that is truly sinister. So it's very, very interesting. There's a lot of occult shit that goes on with this stuff. And again, somebody hit me up about the month of August. I think you guys, you know, are troopers for sticking with me to the very end. And uh, what I'm going to do now is include a clip of someone interviewing. So a late night talk show had asked to stay well to come on and she is introduced as the goddess. I'm sure that's just part of the ritual as well. They got to introduce her as the goddess and he asks her why her life story doesn't make sense and it's always like the information has changed or like weird nothing adds up and she says well I lie about it all the time so there you go right there nobody knows who Tuesday Weld is and as a cherry on top of the Sunday, was she in any good movies uh No. She was in a lot of bad movies, but one of the one good movies, I guess you could say, was Wild in the Country, featuring Tuesday Weld and someone by the name of Elvis Presley. (laughs) So just to end it on a bang, we can connect Tuesday Weld with none other than Elvis Presley. So let's now sum it up with a little interview of Tuesday Weld. It's the time of the season When love runs high In this time Give it to me asked her to come on the show several times and she hasn't and she finally said that she would come on I know that she's been the goddess of many people's fantasies over the years even though she is not very old and uh, she said that there's only one stipulation that I could ask her anything I wanted uh, as long as it was personal which I think is funny will you welcome please Tuesday well Finally, <laughs> yes. got you on television after it's really been a long time since you've done it's anything been like this. It's eight years. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and it's another first. Also, this is the first time I've ever been able to do a show so far without having many bottles is of wine or say, oh yes, really? because I would just get so incredibly nervous. I'd love to and know. And drunk. <laughs> drunk is the word you were avoiding <laughs> yes. there. Yeah, you know, you've had an, really some life, and I, um, I I looked through a lot of things about you. I found some old magazine articles, uh, old interviews, and things like that, and I'm confused, because they they conflict. They don't always agree. I Are you am, confused, too? I'm confused, too, too yeah. Can I ask you this, since you want, only want me to be personal? Do, <laughs> do, did you lie to some of those people in some of those articles, or did they get All them wrong? All of the time. You did? Look out my window 
many sights to see. And when I look in my window, so many different people to be. That it's strange, so strange. You got to pick up every stitch. You got to pick up every stitch. You got to pick up every stitch. Mm -hmm. Must be the season of the week. 